0: you with us here today um, for those who are familiar with urban village you know that most Sundays we also invite one of you to come up and uh, share what we call testimony so we ask folks to share a little bit about what's going on in their lives especially what God might be doing in their lives and um, we had I think it's probably the bulletin that Jim downey was to give the testimony Jim was ready and able and willing to do it uh, we didn't cancel the last minute saying Jim no. Uh, so Jim will do his test next week, but today, with Jeanette's presence with us, I thought it would be good for us just to give us a little bit more time uh, to uh, have conversation. Uh, so I've got some questions that I will ask her, but also to open it up for you, questions that you may have. Uh, Jeanette said she's pretty much heard them all, uh, and so questions, all questions are welcome. Uh, and I know that this is a community of, of respect and love, too, so... So again, Jim will give his testimony next week. Uh, I'm going to invite Laura up right now to read the scripture, Uh, and then after she comes up, then uh, I will introduce Jeanette, and we'll begin our conversation. Okay. Okay. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, a passage about
1: After a few days, Jesus went back to Capernaum, and people heard that he was at home. So many gathered that there was no longer space, not even near the door. Jesus was speaking the word to them. Some people arrived, and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed. They couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off a part of the roof above where Jesus was. When they made an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed, child, your sins are forgiven. Some legal experts are sitting there muttering among themselves. Why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one God can forgive sins. Jesus immediately recognized what they were discussing and he said to them, Why do you fill your mind with these questions? Which is easier to say to a paralyzed person? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your bed and walk. It's so you will know that the human one has authority on the earth to forgive sins to the man who was get up, take your mat, and go Jesus raised him up, and right away he picked up his mat and walked out in front of They were amazed and praised God, saying, "We've never seen anything like this." The word of God
0: for So we are in this sermon series that we are calling Healing to Wholeness, and um, today we were going to the. Uh, talk about uh, healing and how uh, it is helpful to engage in what's called active coping versus passive coping um, so active and engaging with the pain that we may feel rather than avoiding it uh, and that's always tempting to do at times it's helpful for us to heal but eventually it's healthy for us to engage in the pain that we might be feeling and so we were going to talk, I was going to talk about how the, the man's friend in the story engaged in active coping, like doing whatever they could so that their friend could engage in the healing process. So, so the election changed some things, I think, for us a little bit. And so today uh, we'll still talk about that, but perhaps in a different kind of way. I know, as Emily noted too, and I've been getting a lot of messages from folks throughout the week, that uh, emotions are still very raw. And uh, I still have not really been able to read the news uh, yet. Uh, And um, that's one way to cope. And others have engaged in other ways like that favorite song that just helps you through it or maybe eating comfort food or uh, getting together with friends or whatever it is. Uh, I know a lot of folks have been doing that. And so that's certainly, I think, healthy and it can be a way for us to engage in healing the hurt that we might be feeling. But um, we also want to think about what are ways that we want to engage. And I think just showing up today is a way of engaging. Uh, getting out of bed may have been hard, uh, and so that you're here today. And engaging in, le- in the kinds of conversations that we'll have today, I think, are really helpful for us, too. And so um, that's part of the process. And we're grateful that uh, end could be with us. So last summer, some of you know Jenna Hilton, who's a part of our uh, congregation, our site. Uh, this was at the Printers Row Fest, and there was uh, a Muslim community that had a table up uh, at Printers Row Fest, and Jenna was talking to them, and she said to me, I think we should have some kind of interfaith conversation, and so I said, that's a great idea, and so I knew uh, Hannah Harden, who's our Wicker Park site pastor, uh, is friends with Jenna, and so Hannah, I talked to Hannah, and I know of the great work that Interfaith Youth Corps does, and so, um, We've been speaking with Janine and um, originally uh, Janine was supposed to come in October but had some conflicts and so I think it's somewhat providential that uh, today was the date that uh, she was able to be with us. So before she comes up, just a quick uh, word of introduction. As I noted, uh, Janine works for Interfaith Youth Corp. You have a new title. What's your new title? Curriculum Consultant. Curriculum Consultant is the, is the new title. But She's done a lot of leadership training programs uh, literally around the world. For uh, Interfaith Youth Corps, she is a graduate of DePaul University. uh, Went and majored in elementary education and Islamic studies. She won the Young Alumni Spirit Award from DePaul. Originally from India, grew up in Qatar and the United States. Uh, She speaks fluent Hindi or Hindi and uh, Urdu. uh, Lives in Hyde Park. Is that right? Lives in Hyde Park. What's that? Kenwood. Kenwood Kenwood. uh, with her family, and uh, I'll let her say a little bit more about the community that she's a part of. Down on the south side, but would you please welcome uh, Janine. I've uh, <laughs> we had several people today to said, oh, I can't make it, I'm going to be out of town, and so we are recording this, and so uh, if, uh, hopefully this will be helpful for you, so we'll make sure that we let you know where that will be, so if you want to pass this on, to any of <laughs> your friends, um, you'll be able to do just that as well. Welcome.
2: Thank you. It's great to
0: have you with us. It's
2: lovely to be here.
0: Yeah, I think probably what would be most helpful is, uh, in a sense, share your own story. So tell us a little bit about uh, your own uh, upbringing and uh, faith life and uh, kind of where you are today.
2: Sure. So my last name is Mohajir, which actually means immigrant in Arabic. And I think um, it would be proper to say that I have immigrated from many different places, both physically and spiritually. Um, So my parents are actually from Southern India and um, my family still lives there, my grandmother still lives in Southern India, but they are part of a, a a growing number of people in the 70s who also moved to the Middle East and lived in the Middle East as expats, working in various industries in the Gulf. um, The country that my parents lived in was Qatar, and that's where I grew up for most of my life. And Qatar is an interesting place to be because um, it is only about 20%, um, the population is only 20% national Qataris, and about 80% expats from other parts of South Asia and Europe, and in, in recent years, the Americas as well. So it was a very diverse place to grow up, but it was a very segregated place to grow up because everyone um, had their own sort of school system. Everyone had their own communities that lived in similar spaces. Um, So it's a lot like Chicago in that way. Um, But uh, it was interesting to be there and to be navigating both um, ethnic difference and also religious difference. So India as a country, um, as many of you probably know, is a majority uh, Hindu country, which is a polytheistic faith. And then the minorities within India are um, many, but the most predominant are Christian and Muslim. Um, so being a minor, being a part of a minority culture within a national identity, but living in a Muslim majority country is a very confusing way to grow up. Um, so that was definitely something that I was navigating um, from a young age. And my mom's best friend is a South Indian Catholic. Um, so we grew up um, very close to this family, and our rituals were very shared. So, Muslims celebrate um, two holidays in the year called Eid, um, one at the end of Ramadan, and Ramadan is the month of fasting, which closes out with this holiday of Eid. And then about two months after that, you celebrate a different Eid. Um, that kind of commemorates um, the Hajj, which is one of the five pillars a pilgrimage that Muslims are required to make once in their lifetime to Mecca, um, and it also commemorates the story of Abraham and Ishmael. So um, those two raids we would spend in Qatar, in a Muslim country where the entire country is celebrating, but our house was filled with people who weren't Muslim. They were filled, we were filled with our Catholic neighbors and our um, Hindu friends and our obviously our Muslim family and friends as well. So we grew up in this really interesting sort of place of multiple identities Um, and every Christmas we My family doesn't celebrate Christmas, but we would be part of our, my aunt's celebrations. So um, we would make sure to show up to their house with presents and um, give our sort of congratulations to them as they were celebrating their holiday and be part of the festivities. Um, I'm the one who ruined Santa for her kids. Um, so she, um, this was when I was when I was around 11, and she was very determined to make sure that, that I did not ruin Santa for her kids. So she woke up at 6 a.m. and showed up at our door and left presents outside of our door um, to prove to her kids that Santa existed, which was great. Um, so I think a turning point for my family really came um, in the 90s. Um, Starting in the 90s, there was a lot of um, communal riots happening in India between Hindus and Muslims. And as a result, um, a lot of people lost their lives, a lot of people lost their homes, and it created um, this, this discomfort in the culture which still exists today. And those riots will continue at a flashpoint whenever there is a national incident that occurs. But it was really during that time in the early 90s when some of those incidences were happening more frequently that I started hearing my parents talk about whether or not they would choose to migrate another time to a different country. Um, I also want to pause there and recognize the privilege of that statement of being able to say we have the economic ability to apply and to wait and to try and move. So um, in the mid 90s when they were lucky enough to be uh, admitted into the United States and received a green card and were allowed to immigrate, um, they chose to do that. And it was for the second time in their lives is um, they decided to pick up everything they knew and move to a different place and start all over again and did that because they were wondering what it means for their children who are visibly Muslim in a very, non-Muslim country, What if we would go back to India, um, how they would live out their lives, how we would live out their lives. And America was the most um, logical choice for them, recognizing the promise that it had um, for both its multiculturalism and its diversity and its religious freedom. So it's interesting that we are where we are today um, based on the choices that they made um, in that migration here. Um, and we migrated to the suburbs of Chicago. So I went to public school here and then went on to DePaul University, um, just up the road. And um, I'm the Muslim who found Islam at a Catholic university.
1: So <laughs> my
2: family was very culturally Muslim. Um, my Most of the women in my family when I was growing up didn't cover their hair. Um, we you know, ate the food, we knew the tradition. Um, it was a very cultural part of our lives. It was not a very spiritual part of our life. And um, when I came to DePaul University, one of the things that I sort of went into immediately was a part of their service learning program and as a result found myself in the basement of various Catholic churches on the south and west sides of Chicago, tutoring young elementary children to do homework and and just doing an after school program with them. And on the bus ride home I would look around and see that the people on the bus with me were all from different philosophies and different faith traditions and we would often kind of delve into this conversation of why are you here? Why is this important to you? Why are you doing this? Um, And I started hearing why people were inspired to do this from their faith traditions, why they were inspired to do this because of their humanist tradition and started to think about why was I inspired to do this. And, and that question really kept bringing me back to the religion of my childhood, which is Islam. And through that experience, really sort of found my language within this tradition. Um, and as a freshman in college, decided that I wanted to cover my hair, which surprised the heck out of my family. Um, <laughs> And my mom, who um, was very devout, is still very devout, um, kind of pulled me aside, and she was like, are you, are you dating an Arab man that I don't know about? <laughs> and I'm just like, no, no, I'm not dating an Arab man. Um, so so it, was, it, it was that journey through finding Islam in this very Catholic institution with a very Catholic identity, where is how sort of I began to define my own identity as a Muslim. Um, and through that service learning program, found myself in front of a class of freshman students on September 11, 2001. And um, my role that day in that particular class was to talk about why Muslims are called to do service. Um, As you all would imagine, that's not what we talked about. Um, Mostly we watched in horror um, on the TV, on on what was happening on television in New York. And after that was really um, when I realized that I, interfaith was no longer a choice it was no longer a fun activity to do, um, to engage in, but it had basically become a lifeline. It had become a way to um, build relationships, to sustain the work that we had done um, on campus, but it also became a way to think about how do you fight back against um, basically having my own tradition hijacked by this minority of people um, who are claiming to do these heinous crimes in the name of, of the faith that I love and grew up in? So that was sort of how um, my commitment to interfaith became solidified as more than a hobby. And um, a few years after that, after graduating, I happened, I had heard of the Interfaith Youth Corps, was part of some of its programming as a teacher when I taught in an elementary school, and um, ultimately decided to join their forces, and here I am.
0: So interesting, because in college, the story I often hear from folks is <clears throat> if they have any kind of faith background, it's yeah, I went to Sunday school as a kid, may or may not have gotten involved in youth group, and then went to college, and <laughs> that's kind of like their exit sure. from any kind of faith or engaging with faith, mm-hmm. and then that may happen for a few years, and then maybe if they get married or have kids, that's kind of their entry point. So but for you, it sounds like college was really the main time for you to engage, and was there some, can you, specific moment or was it a gradual thing that made you really begin to explore what it means to be a committed Muslim?
2: Yeah, so growing up in the Middle East in a very Muslim place, I actually became, high school was that time for me mm-hmm. where I was just very turned off by religion um, and that's because um, in a lot of parts of the Muslim world, culture plays a big role um, in how faith is lived out and unfortunately what happens is a lot of things that are very salient in religious practice kind of get canceled out by culture. Um, this is most obvious in terms of um, what I like to call the double standard against men and women, right? So there's a lot of, um, that, that part of my identity, the, the female sort of feminist, lowercase f, part of my identity um, definitely was not, was not in tune with my faith tradition and kind of was, not, I wasn't willing to engage it. Um, being in college, what I really discovered um, was that I was able to navigate between those two selves and that's what really brought me back to Islam is I, I discovered what it meant to be a Muslim feminist, if, for lack of a better term, um, and discovered how to navigate those those different areas of passion for me. Um, it happened actually, um, the night that I decided to start wearing hijab actually was um, a really interesting place. and. Um, as I'm talking, I'm realizing some of the connections that are currently happening for me. Uh, we hosted, our, our MSA, our Muslim Student Association on campus, hosted um, a conversation in April of 1999 um, on women and uh, female scholarship within Islam. And this person that they had asked to come speak uh, was um, a female scholar in the Muslim community by the name of Dr. Ingrid Mattson. Um, and Dr. Matson had She converted to Islam as a young person in college herself, she's Canadian. Um, She um, has done loads of research on um, basically issues of marriage, issues of building community, um, women's scholarship within Islam, and she's just this powerhouse, and she, I had never met her. I came to this lecture because my friend coerced me to, and sort of heard her speak, and her message really resonated with me. And for the first time, I could, I could um, communicate with her or I could connect with her on this level of being like, I don't, I didn't feel like I had to compromise anything to be Muslim or compromise another part of my identity. And that's when I found the beauty of Islam is like I embraced it with my whole self and it embraced me back. And, and that, um, and she was really the vehicle for me in that. Um, and the reason I'm saying, and I might get a little emotional just to kind of, um, First out of that for you all. Um, so Dr. Mattson currently lives in Canada. Her daughter is a few years younger than me, um, has been a friend, and I have known her for many years. Has battled a very rare disease for many years, and recently just passed away. Um, and my friend and I basically got in a car and drove to Canada when we heard that that happened, um, and got to Dr. Matson's house and. We're talking through her pain and her grief, and we're trying to figure out, and you know, how to navigate the complexity of a Muslim funeral with a number of non-Muslim family who are Dr. Matson's family, and she is the chair of Islamic studies at a prominent university in London, Ontario. So a lot of her um, Christian theologian colleagues were also going to be attending this funeral. So we were sort of navigating that, and she turned to me and she was like, "Janet, will you emcee this for me?" And that was a huge honor. Um, Um, but it took me back to that moment in 1999
1: sorry guys
2: and it was gratifying to be able to give back to her in the way that she has been able to give to us so I was texting with her on election day and she was like, I'm not sure I can come back to the States, but we'll, we'll hopefully make that happen.
0: Mm-hmm. There's so many questions I think that I have, and I'm sure others too, just about to talk more about uh, Islam. And, uh, um, but I thought probably one of the questions that I would imagine is on the minds of, of many of us. Um, some of you may remember Taylor Sitt, who was uh, a resident, uh, an intern with us a couple of years ago he's now starting to plant a church in Minneapolis. He had a great idea this week. He just set up a shop along the street in Minneapolis with a sign that just said, how are you? Uh, Let me buy you coffee. And um, so I think that's probably the question that maybe you're getting a lot this week, of people asking, how are you? (laughs) And what, I would imagine, just a huge (laughs) range of emotions that you've been feeling since Tuesday.
2: Yeah, Um, as I've heard you all reference over the last um, Twenty minutes or so. This week was rough. It was a rough week, um, and um, I've been thinking a lot about sort of where we are at. And um, my Facebook is filled. My Facebook wall, as I'm sure a lot of yours are, is filled with lots of mixed emotion. Right. So there's the emotion of. Um, all right, it's over, we have to accept it and move on and figure out how to work with this administration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> then there's the like, y'all are crazy, we are not gonna work with this administration. Um, and stop saying that. And then there's just the pure sort of shock and, and awe. and. Um, I feel like I kind of I swing from a pendulum of shock and awe to y'all are crazy like that's kind of where I'm at, um, and navigating sort of how to move forward. So in the Muslim community, there's there's a saying that's like um, you know you plan and then God plans and God is the best of planners. So um, take His lead, and and I think a lot of people are finding comfort in that in the sense that um, we worked myself and many others in the Muslim community worked very diff- very. Um, hard to be part of this election process and to be part of um, how to push back against hate rhetoric um, in this election process and now we are where we are and to some extent it's um, it's painful because the people have spoken, um, it's painful to know that 46% of the country did not vote and did not choose to engage um, it's painful to recognize that once again, African American women showed up and voted and showed up and did their job, and everybody else didn't show up you know so so that that is a painful truth to sit with um, and you know as someone who's American, my husband is is um, half Palestinian half irish American um, so my kids are you know part Irish part Indian part i don't know everything and, and fully american and and there's a part of me that is very fearful for their future. But I also have privilege in that because um, my fear is not greater than the fear of my friend Tanya or my friend Hannah or my friend Kalia who all have beautiful boys who are as old as my boy and they have to worry about whether their boy's gonna get shot in the street. right? So so even in my fears, um, there is certain privilege that I have to recognize and, um, and have to kind of sit with and, and figure out what that means and I think if there is any sort of call to action in the current time, I would say that is to show up um, and to show up and, and to show up in ways um, that's meaningful, to show up in ways that builds bridges, and to show up in ways that actually goes beyond um, rhetoric and goes really into deep building of community, um, which needs to happen both internally within our communities, within our religious communities, within our ethnic and racial communities, and it also needs to happen across with each other.
0: Can I ask, in in hearing some of my friends who are people of color, one thing that took me a little bit aback was uh, for for some, if not the majority of them, they weren't surprised Mm by the election results. And uh, so how about you? Were you surprised?
2: I was very surprised. Um, and I think that's because I am an optimist, <laughs> so I was hoping for the best outcome. Um, and as we, we had some friends over on election night and we you know had all the comfort food out, we had the chocolate and the hummus, yeah. and we're prepared for the worst, and we're sitting and we're watching our TVs and we just watched our map turn red. And it was, it was one of those feelings where you just like, you know, my husband at midnight was like, I'm going to bed, this is over, and I'm, know a glutton for punishment so i sat up until 2:30 to watch the end of it until the concession speech so it was it was painful to to watch that happen um and it was painful to sit in the choice that we had made as a as a community as a country um even though i didn't per, per personally make that choice right so um it was difficult to sit through that
0: how have you in, in your own way begun the process of responding and healing, uh, I think we've all kind of done our own things, how have you responded just in these last few days?
2: Yeah, um, my I was incredibly blessed to be working at the Interfaith Youth Corps <laughs> when this happened. So um, it was wonderful to be in community there uh, with people that I have loved and worked with for many years. Um, in our personal life, we have kind of hunkered into the Muslim community to be like, what do we do next, what happens now? Um, How can we move forward? And we're looking at at, um, those strategies in terms of community engagement. But then personally, we're really looking at how do we continue to build bridges and how do we each fill a role um, and recognize that not everyone has the capacity to fill that role, right? Mm -hmm. So when I'm speaking with some of my friends who are both um, African American and Muslim, um, they're not surprised that this happened. And they're like, this is not our problem, right? They're like, the, the community who showed up to vote for this person needs to figure out how they build bridges within their own community to solve these issues. Um, and I respect that. And I think that that's a valid position to take. Um, for myself as someone who is both Muslim and, I, I'm not sure if I, I would call myself a person of color. I'm an ethnic minority. Um, I think I have a different role to play in terms of trying to build bridges and also trying to bring um, some of myself as a Muslim and also as someone who is part of a multiracial family um, to the forefront to say, how do we lead by example? How do we continue building community by example? Um, You know, on the street that we live in Kenwood, it's uh, on the south side of Chicago, the neighbors across from us are um, an elderly Baha'i couple who um, are from a Christian background but converted to Baha'i when they were young adults and um, their daughter um, is Christian and is married to a Christian South Asian man and our other neighbors are African American and go to go to church every Sunday. So we, we live on this really interesting mm-hmm. street and for me personally the question I'm asking is how am I um, strengthening these bonds? How am I building these relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like for me? And um, just to give you an example, our neighborhood street um, uh, block, Organization is fairly active, and a couple of nights ago, you know, we heard um, we heard what we thought was gunfire, and we're kind of wondering, do we call the cops? Like, what do we do? And quickly, sort of started texting each other, and the neighborhood sort of became, you know, it started buzzing, and basically, we figured out that actually, no, it wasn't gunshots; it was actually fireworks um, that some kids were doing, like a few couple blocks away from us, and someone had actually witnessed them and then let everybody else know, no, actually don't call the cops, it's just fireworks. And that I think is, a, is an example of how a community can really engage and be connected so that we're not um, we're not rejecting a system, but at the same time we are being vigilant on how we engage with the system, how we engage with law enforcement, how we engage with one another, what kinds of relationships and trust do you build on that?
0: Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, what, uh, this is a very general question and one, I'm sure you get a lot, but what are some of the general, I guess, misperceptions that people have about Muslims, particularly from people who would consider themselves well-meaning uh, and want to learn? And, uh, so, you know, what are some of the, the biggest misperceptions that you face?
2: Um, I think the number one mis- misperception that I've come across is um, the assumption that all Muslims are Arab. Um, in fact, majority of Muslims are not Arab. Um, so if you look at the 1.2 billion Muslims around the world, a majority of them are actually South Asian. So majority of Muslims live in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, then um, that area of the map. Um, I think the reason that that misperception happens is because the holy places that are important to Muslims are housed in Arab countries. They're housed in, obviously, in Saudi Arabia, where Mecca and Medina are, which are the places of sanctuary and pilgrimage. Um, and I think it's this, you know, it's this um, sort of um, political story that we have told about who Muslims are, um, starting with, you know, the early 19th century, and then and then kind of building forward into modern, current day times. Um, that kind of forms that misperception. In America, the Muslim community is actually, um, interestingly, it's equally diverse. So if you look at numbers of ethnic, ethnic breakdown within the Muslim community, the African-American Muslim community is the majority. Um, and they are Muslims who have been here, who have lived here. Um, they are not immigrants. They are you know, ethnically American, like that's who they are. And then there's other communities like um, the South Asian community and then um, sort of a, a mix of Arab communities. Um, who are sort of equal in numbers and um, not as, as many as African American, but are equal in numbers. Um, and then of course there's um, you know, Caucasian converts as well. So it's a very diverse community, I think, and culturally, but I think the way that they're represented is as this immigrant other force, right? So either it's, um, mostly it's, it's represented as Arab, um, but obviously South Asians are a big part of that as well. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the biggest misconception
0: that I see. Yeah, um, So many questions, but I'm going to stop. I've got others, but I'm going to pause here to see if there's anyone here today who, in the midst of our conversation, is there anything that's popped up that anyone wants to ask uh, Jeanette? Feel free. Uh, One thing. Julio. This is a light question, but um, the agreeing,
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so assalamu alaikum is peace be upon you. Um, and then the response is wa alaikum salam, so and upon you. Um, Can we practice that? Sure. Can we, so,
0: <laughs> the, the first, so if you were to say, sure. um Say it slowly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: sure. It's yeah. assalamu. Assalamu. Alaikum. Um And that's the greeting that you initiate. Say so one
0: more time.
2: Assalamu. Assalamu. Alaikum. Um, and the return is Wa alaikum. Wa alaykum. As-salam. As-salam. Okay. So it's peace be upon you, and um, you respond with that peace be upon you. So it's not very different from what we did a little earlier today. Yeah.
0: Good. Uh, hello, did you have a question?
2: that's right yeah Um, thank you for that yeah so sometimes when you read you say and that last part is basically adding um, God's mercy and um, pleasure on you so it's like inviting God to, to bless you even
0: more thank you for that thank you for that I had a chance to hear Did you say who Ibu
2: Patel is, for those who don't know? Yeah, so Ibu Patel is the founder of, um, Interfaith Youth Corps, founder and president, Um, and he is also a Muslim man, but he is an Ismaili Muslim man, which is a um, a minority sect within Islam. I am part of the Sunni community myself, Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit if people are still wondering about that. If I understand your question correctly, are you asking how Islam and Christianity are connected? Right, and the idea of Islam being a religion of peace. Sure. So if you think about the Abrahamic trifecta, um, so there's Judaism, then there's Christianity, and then Islam is sort of the the end of that journey. Um, So Muslims believe in the same prophets as the biblical prophets, right? So we believe in Jesus as a prophet, um, but not as someone who has divine um, power. And we believe in Moses as a prophet, we believe in Abraham as a prophet as well. Um, So Christians and Muslims are connected in the way that we have a lot of those similar stories of the the prophetics, of the prophetic time. And Muhammad, peace be upon him, is we believe is the last prophet. Um, And there are no prophets between Jesus and Muhammad. So after Jesus comes, there is a, um, a lapse in time and then Muhammad comes after him with revelation. And we believe that Muhammad was the seal of the prophet. So he was the end of the prophetic line. Um, and then we also believe that each prophet brought with them uh, wisdom and word of God. Um, so Moses was given um, the commandments, the Torah, and the, actually I'm not sure if it's Torah, so don't me on that, he was given the commandments. Um, Jesus was given the gospels, and then Muhammad was given the Quran. And though that is, you know, we believe that that was, um, revelation is part of a prophetic, it's a prophetic miracle. So it's part of that. Um, and the difference really comes um, For Muslims and Christians, I think the main difference is around the divinity of Jesus. Um, We believe that he was um, conceived immaculately, that Mary conceived him um, as a miracle. We believe that she is among um, the highest ranks of women in heaven and paradise. Um, And she definitely has a very special place in in the Muslim narrative. Um, Just to give you a quick story from uh, the prophet's life. So when the prophet first receives revelation, um, his own tribe and his people in Mecca uh, they obviously reject him and call him a heretic. And the few followers that he has at the time um, come under a lot of uh, scrutiny and pressure from the tribe that governs Mecca. So the prophet asks his cousin Jafar um, to kind of take these few um, Muslims who are not able to withstand the torture of being persecuted and asks him to migrate with them across the Arabian Sea to Ethiopia. Because Ethiopia at the time, also called known as Abyssinia, was a Christian kingdom under the king Nagos, who was a Christian king. So the prophet tells Jafar, you know, take them across the sea to Nagos and he is Christian and he will give you refuge. Um, So Jafar goes across the sea and comes to the court of Nagos and um, Nagos kind of calls him up in court and says, you know, tell me who you are. And Jafar tells him who they are and where they're from. And then he asks him, you know, tell me about your prophet. So Jafar tells him about Muhammad and then he, Nagos says, tell me about your book. And Jafar reads to him from the chapter of Mary, um, which is a, a, a predominant chapter within the Quran that talks about the story of Mary, talks about um, the birth of Jesus and, and Jesus the prophet. And at the end of that, Nagos sort of comes up to Jafar and tells him, um, you know, the difference between you and us is no thicker than this line. And He draws a line in the sand. Um, and that's not to say that theologically Christianity in, in Islam is not different. They are very different. But in that moment, what Negros was doing is acting on what we like to call his interfaith leadership and saying, I recognize that there are major differences between us, but I also recognize that we have some shared values, and upon those shared values, you are welcome here. Um, So those Muslims lived in Abyssinia for a number of years until um, it was safe for them to return to Saudi Arabia, and, and then they did so. So I'm not sure if that gives you a little illustration of some of the connections between Um, Christianity
0: and Islam and also some of the differences, yeah. I'm uh, conscious of time. Janet. is going to, she'll be able to stick around after worship uh, for about a half hour or so. and So folks can stick around and ask more questions. I guess the last question I have for you is I'm I'm grateful for, to hear you continue to be committed to building bridges. And I get for some who have said I'm I'm out for right now or for whatever reason. Uh, But I'm grateful for your own witness. So for uh, for people who follow Jesus, um, uh, how can we be allies? Uh, and I know there's also you may people like place that burden upon you, like tell us what to do, kind of a thing. Because sometimes also whites are guilty of then kind of worming their way in and taking over. Sure. But for people who are well meaning and want to feeling compelled to do something, yeah. what is your response to that?
2: I think that's a very large question. <laughs> I think some of the ways um, that I think it's important to move forward is to really give voice um, to those who are re- at the receiving end of this of this hateful rhetoric, right? So if we, um, I'm not sh- sure you all should go look at this, I looked at it and it was definitely not self-care. Um, some, some activists have started a Tumblr page that just like, is accumulating all of the hate crimes that have been happening since November 9th and that page is growing. Um, And it is growing on different fronts. It's growing against LGBTQ community. It is growing against immigrants. There's eighth graders chanting, build the wall at schools, right? So so that's how visceral we have gotten to be. So I think what's important in that place is to really give voice to those narratives and to bring those voices to light um, and start um, listening to that narrative more in its most authentic way. And I think that's honestly the, the best and the most proactive way um, to be an ally is to, is to kind of give voice to people who are on the receiving end of that and to say, you tell us your story. You tell us what, what um, you want to do and we will follow in your leadership. And I think that's um, that's, for me, the best way to sort of chart forward from here.
0: I've read a really good article that said, uh, this was uh, written, or re- written recently but a pastor in Texas who said just showing up is really can be a really key thing. Uh, particularly if, so his he, wife he joined the NAACP in this town in Texas and he just, he didn't try to be a leader, he just came and listened just, and then to slowly and patiently wait to see what role can I play, but he didn't jump right in and say, all right, what can I do and how can I fix things? Mm-hmm. He just sat there and just began to build a relationship Uh, And so um, I think that's one of the things that's helpful. I don't know, in the story, uh, when they brought the man down from the roof, it doesn't tell us if the man asked for help or not. (laughs) (laughs) Or if they just kind of said, come on, we're gonna heal you. And he's like, wait, I'm not sure I'm ready for this yet. You're gonna light, break it down from where? Not the roof? Um, So I think it speaks a little bit to the well-meaning, that's people who want their friend to be healed. And I think all of us here want that too but also to, to listen uh, is really crucial. Yeah. Uh, and so, I don't know if there's any final thing you want to share with us in this place at this time, or?
2: You know, there's a couple couple pieces of poetry that I'll, that I'll kind of end with. Um, one of them is uh, from Rumi, who said, the, the wound is where the light enters you, right? So, um, we are collectively wounded, and I think right now is where we sort of have to let that light sort of guide us and enter us. And as a person of faith, as someone who believes in God, um, I really believe that he will find a way to lead us and we have to look for the signs and look for the the, the voices that will that help us lead down that path or help lead us on that path and, and then take charge um, in that way. Um, I'm also sort of sitting um, uncomfortably, but sitting in, um, in Langston Hughes's poem of Let America Be America. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that and I wrote it down I, so I don't butcher it. But let America be America again, let it be the dream it used to be, let it be the pioneer on the plane, seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me, right? So that reality is, is very much still our reality and, and I'm sitting with that and, and hoping that that is remembered, and that that is something that we can continue um, to chart forward in in looking and confirming America's promise um, that it was founded on, so yeah.
0: Good. Could we pray for you?
2: Sure. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Let's
0: pray. Lord, we are grateful for Janine's witness, for who she is, for who you have created her to be, and we thank you for um, her continuing desire to build bridges and we pray that in our own time when we're ready that we would join her in that building process. Pray for her family, for her community, for all the work that she does and we continue to pray for this country and uh, there may be some if not many who feel disillusioned today and wondering what next. We ask that you would just every day shine a little light so we know to step into it and then that we might be that light for others too. So that others would know that we are still here, that we would love our neighbor, uh, as Jesus called us to do. We pray all this in your name. Amen. 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 We give Jeanette a hand for me. I think she will be, uh, she'll stick around after worship today um, to answer any questions and, and just engage in a conversation that any of you may have. Um, so normally, some of you who've been here know that we're in this season. You probably saw it in the We're in this season of um, asking folks to make financial pledges, which